Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday, the first day of March. Here we are, we're in autumn. I'm Tom Tilley. This is The Briefing. And today, Hannah Clark's legacy. She's the woman who last year, along with her children, was burnt to death in her car by a partner. One year on, and her family are fighting for new laws that might have saved her life. They're based around coercive control. What I'm hoping for, amongst many other things, is that we basically, through this law, establish a rule against the oppression of one person or of a family in personal life. Yeah, find out what coercive control is in just a moment. First, Annika Smethurst is here. And Annika, you got the hen's night away finally. Finally, it did happen. It feels like a little, uh, I guess, mountain to climb. The next one is the wedding, so fingers crossed. Oh, we're watching that happen. <laughs> yeah, we're watching very closely the the dramas of Annika Smithhurst's life in uh, the times of Corona. Another sexual assault allegation has rocked Canberra. This time, a federal Labor MP accused of rape in a new email sent to a Liberal senator and forwarded to the Australian Federal Police. This was revealed by Victorian Liberal Senator Sarah Henderson, who tweeted that the woman had sent her an email on Sunday alleging the rape by a man who is now a Labor MP in federal parliament. It's come after an anonymous letter on Friday about an alleged rape in 1988 by a man who is now in the federal cabinet. And two weeks after former Liberal advisor Brittany Higgins claimed she was raped by a colleague in a federal minister's office. And police have expanded their search for human remains linked to Sydney businesswoman Melissa Caddick. This comes after that sharp turn of events on Friday when we learnt a shoe containing human remains had washed up at Bordner Beach near Tarthra. DNA testing crossed with some samples taken from Caddick's toothbrush confirmed the remains belonged to her. Yeah, then on Friday night, parts of a stomach, including a belly button, were found washed up at Mollymook, which is about 150 k's north of where the shoe was found. Then on Saturday, uh, bones were found at a beach much closer to Bordner, uh, but so far neither of those body parts have been identified. As well as searching around Mollymook and Tarthra, police are now conducting searches at Kunjurong Point, about 30 kilometres north of Mollymook. So it's three months now, three and a half months since the 49-year-old disappeared after leaving her home. Her husband thought she was going for a morning run. Really interesting interview on the front page of the Daily Telegraph today, Annika, an experienced police officer in retrieving bodies from the water, casting doubt on the theory that she took her own life near her home in Sydney and floated so far south. He said while it is possible that she drifted that far, the bodies of most suicides near the gap in Sydney are found much closer to the spot, like near Maroubra Beach. They often don't even make it past Botany Bay. You know, the likelihood that she went so far... He's not that strong, he reckons. Yeah, he also says that the body, the state of the body uh, doesn't really fit with the fact that she jumped in that long ago. Perhaps she died much more recently. I guess that means it doesn't rule out foul play because, you know, any number of things could have happened since November. And if that story raises any issues for you or, or anyone you know, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And another step forward in the vaccine rollout with 300,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine arriving in Sydney yesterday. Another point of hope, another point of protection. That's Health Minister Greg Hunt there. This means Australia has officially doubled its coronavirus vaccine stocks. The federal government hopes to get the new vaccine into people's arms a week from today on March 8. 
for the next week, they're under close watch at a storage facility in Western Sydney and they'll be batch tested by scientists from the Therapeutic Goods Administration. A specialist team of detectives from the Australian Federal Police is also compiling a list of anti-vaccination protesters after concerns that vaccination centres and storage facilities could become targets. Task Force Lotus will be responsible for monitoring the online interactions of the anti-vaccination movement and even who's attending the protests and rallies happening around the country. Okay, in just a moment, we're talking coercive control. A little over a year ago, one of the most horrifying things in our history happened. 31-year-old Hannah Clark and her three children were on the way to school when her estranged husband jumped in that car, doused them in petrol and set them alight in Brisbane's Camp Hill. The incident absolutely rocked Australia and it brought to light that massive issue of intimate partner violence. Sadly, this kind of tragedy is way too common. On average, one woman a week is killed by her former or current partner. Leading up to her death, Hannah's husband became increasingly controlling, isolating her from family and friends. He tracked where she went, monitored who she spoke to and dictated what she wore. Now, that pattern of behaviour is called coercive control. And now there's a push to make that kind of behaviour a criminal offence. The Queensland government's taking steps to criminalise it after Hannah's parents have been pushing it in Queensland. And last week in New South Wales, there were hearings about it as part of a parliamentary committee. So let's find out how these laws would actually work. Sue Clark joins us. She's a very brave woman, Hannah Clark's mother. She's been through hell but she's been channeling her pain into campaigning for these laws. Sue, what's the last 12 months been like for you? Uh, very lonely, <laughs> very busy. We've been throwing everything we have into getting these coercive control laws uh, legislated in Queensland. So it's been very long. It's been hard with COVID, but we're getting there. And do you feel like you will eventually make a difference so that this sort of thing might not happen in the future? Yes, we do. Yes, we've got to prevent this happening ever again. And I think a lot of it comes from education as well, not just having the law legislated. Have there been some positive moments where you feel like you are making progress? Very much so. Very much so. I even heard of uh, one man who read all about coercive control and went to his wife and said, oh my gosh, it's like looking in a mirror. So to hear things like that is wonderful. And he went and got help. He didn't realise he was doing it. And I think a lot of men don't realise they're doing it. And a lot of women don't realise what it is. So if we can get it educated and people out there to understand exactly what it is, I think that will make a big difference as well. So do you feel that that education and and the language around this kind of behaviour is what you're trying to change by introducing a law or is it actually about prosecuting people? Like what's the impact you're hoping a legal change will have? Well, we would like a legislated as a law and be a jailable offence for some of these offenders because it just takes away their sense of entitlement if they're put in jail and that's what they're all about is entitlement. So we're hoping that will definitely work but also on a positive note I think if we can educate people we won't have to go to being a jail term. Some offenders I think have to be jailed definitely. And if you think about your daughter's experience where do you think these laws might have changed that trajectory? Oh, I feel she'd be alive now. 
I really do. He had all the signs that he was getting dangerous, but there was no laws in place to do anything about it. And if the laws had been there, at which point of that journey do you think they would have made a, a difference? Would it have changed the way maybe you as as a mother could have engaged with that situation or, or some other point in the process? Oh, I just think we would have been able to go to the police and they would have been able to see all the signs there of the coercive control. Also, he breached his DVO. He assaulted her. There were signs there that he was escalating. And I think if we'd had the coercive control law there, it would have been obvious. And hopefully just a small stint in jail may have just been enough to make him change his mind, might have stopped his feeling of entitlement. We can always hope. And Sue, do you have a final message you'd like to get across? Only that if you know someone, a woman in that situation, uh, be patient. It's not easy for them to leave. Mm. You can't force them. We don't understand people who aren't involved in it. It's easy to say, why don't they just leave? But it's not that easy. So I'd just like you to plant a seed in that person's head that they can leave and that there are people there willing to help and support them, but you can't push them. That was Sue Clark, the mother of Hannah Clark. Let's learn more about coercive control and how these new laws could actually work and whether they might even save lives. Jess Hill's an investigative journo and the author of a book about partner violence called See What You Made Me Do. Jess, thank you for joining us on The Briefing. What is the definition of coercive control and what would you look for if you think it's happening to you? Yeah, so it's coercive Control is essentially the um, system of behaviour used usually by one person, but maybe by more than one person, to gain control and dominance over another. And the ways in which that can be done in course of control on the typical plot line usually includes isolation, degradation, monopolization of attention, so so making you believe that it's that it's either all your fault or your job to fix it, surveillance micromanagement of activities, threats, but also really critically often alternating these sort of punishments with kindness, leniency, with love. How do I guess the people that perpetrate this make it difficult and make it hard for the victims to realise what's going on? The reason why it's hard for victims to realise is because coercive controllers make their abuse invisible by making the victim really focus on their own behaviour. So, you know, which is why my book is called See What You Made Me Do. It's either you need to fix it because you've got problems or you need to fix me because I'm a broken man. And so in this way, they make what's happening invisible to the person that's being subjected to it. But in terms of actually gathering evidence on this, we have mixed results from overseas. So in the UK, we've heard police saying that they're finding it difficult to collect evidence. And it's really critical to know that in the um, in England and Wales, there wasn't um, a lot of police training right up front. This happened much later after the laws were introduced. In Scotland, the Police have been so well trained to collect evidence that actually 96% of charges that are referred to the courts are being prosecuted, or charges that police are making are being prosecuted. 
81% in the first year were convicted. There is evidence like text messages. So when someone sends like, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 text messages a day harassing their partner, um, there are bank records, there are photos, um, especially in cases like with Hannah Clark, where Rowan Baxter actually took intimate photos of her and threatened to share them with others. There's testimony from friends and family as to how that person was isolated. So they're finding that actually, when you're not just trying to prosecute an incident, when you're looking at the whole system of abuse, perpetrators of coercive control actually leave evidence everywhere. So in those jurisdictions where these laws are already in place, and as you say, there are convictions, are people going to jail for these kind of crimes or is it just more about stopping them leading to physical violence? Yeah, that's a bit of a, um, a mistake, I think, that that's being made not just by the media but also by some governments in trying to separate coercive control from physical violence. The thing about coercive control is that it may or may not involve physical or sexual abuse. Um, and in fact, a lot of people would argue that any sex that occurs within coercive control because of the extreme power imbalance, consent is at least compromised. Where do you draw the line? Because... Some of it just sounds horrific, but then some of it sounds like it could be open to interpretation, like sending too many text messages. The test that they have in the Scottish law is that they look for two or more behaviours that would cause a reasonable person to feel um, fear, alarm or distress. As with anything, you know, when this is taken to court, it's being assessed as to whether this constitutes abuse. So no court is going to jail someone for just being a bit hectoring of their of their partner or, you know, uh, being, I don't know, a bit needy. When you look at the convictions overseas, there'd be no question in your mind that this is an abusive situation. You know, the types of um, situations in which, you know, there's a guy standing outside his partner's bedroom with a knife Mm. telling her exactly how he's going to kill her. How important is it for us as friends and family of our loved ones to identify this? And how do we talk to somebody that might be the victim of it? What sort of reaction can we expect from them? And how do we navigate that? So when friends or family say, I don't like the way he's treating you, the feeling that comes up in the victim is, I have to defend him, or that person is threatening our relationship. And remembering also that a lot of coercive controllers will will really convince their partners, you know, it's you and me against the world. You shouldn't see those friends because they, they don't understand our relationship. They will basically frame any kind of intervention from friends and family as a misunderstanding of your great love. And it can actually sort of create a barrier um, between you and those friends and family. So what we sort of talk about in the first instance is really just not condemning the person, but condemning the behaviour. So saying things like, I've really noticed lately, you know, um, the way your partner talks to you just really worries me. How are you feeling about that? Because it's the sort of way that he's talking to you, it's it's not anything I would have thought you would have put up with. Or I've noticed changes in you. You know, you don't come out much anymore. Or you look so stressed all the time. You know, the best protection 
um, that people have against being drawn further into coercive control is the eyes of others because mm. isolation is really the key element of coercive control. It makes it possible for the perpetrator to create this sort of alternative universe. And so as long as you're able to just stay in there, even if it's, it's so frustrating because you can see what's going on but your friend or loved one can't, you just have to say to them, you know, this and that, that this might be risky, but like if you ever need help or if you ever need somewhere to come and stay, mm. call me at any time of day or night. And that just knowing that may be the thing that saves that person in that moment where they need to leave. We're talking about the, the legal side of it when we're looking at these proposed laws of coercive control. What impact do you hope these laws would have? So what I'm hoping for, amongst many other things, is that we basically, through this law, establish a rule against the oppression of one person or of a family in personal life. This is oppression. It's the removal of rights. It's basically the removal of that person's sense of self. And until we know what that looks like, it's very little chance that victims are going to know what they're being subjected to. And there's very little chance that friends and family are going to be able to spot it. Jess Hill there, who is a journalist and who's written a book on partner violence. If this show has brought up any issues for you or someone you know, you can get help on 1-800-RESPECT. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, we're looking at gang violence in Australia and uh, basically if we're on the brink of another underbelly-style gang war. Listener.